brace yourself because you're about to dive into another free first hour episode of the Higher Side Chats. And we just want to let you know that whether you're looking for a companion through your paranoid insomnia, entertaining yourself through one of life's mundane activities, or trying to ward off the internal screams of all those sad, smothered souls around the office, THC is here. And you should know that every episode of the Higher Side Chats has an entire second hour for Plus members. Sign up at thehiresidechats.com and you'll get years of Plus show archives, lifetime forum access, a special invite to Greg Carlwood's monthly joint sessions, MP3s of THC music, bonus episodes, tour videos, and 10% off t-shirts, grinders, and whatever else ends up in the Higher Side store. It's $8 a month that you won't miss, so become a Plus member and treat yourself in these troubled times. Always action-packed and commercial-free, which means you'll unfortunately never hear my voice again. In the 1930s, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt addressed the nation through a series of radio broadcasts known as the Fireside Chats. His aim was to reassure the common man that our society would recover from its troubled times. Well, we're far from 1930, and I deal with a different kind of fire. For a new era of worldly frustration, we offer a fresh conversation. I'm Greg Carlwood, and these are the Higher Side Chats. Rock me like a hurricane, Higher Side Chatters. From sunny San Diego, I'm Greg Carlwood, and as we enter the annual holiday season with more control measures than we might have expected... It's hard not to look back at the beginning of 2020 and all the points in time we thought this COVID-19 thing might blow over. But the conspiracy cardigan is definitely keeping us warm through this darkest winter, with no shortage of threads to follow for those confident and brave enough to do so. And we know the oily appendages of the nefarious few have thoroughly captured all of our mainstream institutions, media networks, and the places any average citizen would go for answers in the wake of a crisis. And seeing such a united front for the mainstream narrative can certainly make it hard for us on the outside to stick to our principles, remain confident in our own research, and not acquiesce to fear or authority just because the pressure's high. Though we have seen some of the very alternative researchers who initially taught us about things like Operation Mockingbird, international think tanks, and government deception, completely fall apart this year, right when we've needed them most. Well, as sad as that might be, I've noticed that many experts whose focus has traditionally been in the realm of health and proper nutrition are actually the ones confidently putting the biggest cracks in the COVID story. Who knew? And today's powerhouse guest, Nora Gidgaudis, is exactly one of these sound minds for troubled times, as she's put over 300 hours of research into her 90-plus page COVID-19 special report, available for free download on her website. If you don't know Nora, she's an internationally acclaimed ketogenic and ancestrally-based nutrition specialist who has dedicated her career to combating diseases and health consequences of the industrialized diet. Nora is certified in clinical nutrition and neurofeedback and is the best-selling author of three books entitled Primal Body, Primal Mind, Beyond Paleo for Total Health and a Longer Life, Primal Fat Burner, Live Longer, Slow Aging, Superpower Your Brain, and Save Your Life with a High-Fat, Low-Carb Paleo Diet, and Rethinking Fatigue, What Your Adrenals Are Really Telling You and What You Can Do About It. You can find her ongoing work at her website, primalbody-primalmind.com, and her educational courses as well at primalcourses.com. I know this is going to be a good one. A passionate advocate for the natural ways, a true health optimization expert, and a much-needed thorn in the side of the big machine, Nora, welcome to the higher side. 
<laughs> Greg, thanks for that awesome introduction. And also, I want to just say in passing how impressed I am with how well you pronounced my last name. That's a rarity. <laughs> <laughs> I've put a lot of attention into repeating it many times before I go on the air. When it's Yes, difficult. you obviously rehearsed for a long time on that one. Right. Uh, well, I'm glad you noticed. And this is a real treat. I've heard you speaking on so many important things. And when it comes to COVID-19, we've done enough homework to understand the problems with the PCR tests, false positives, the financial incentives to mark the cause of death as COVID, the sad story of the ventilators. 2020 has been a wild ride. But we are deep in the heavily predicted second wave. And I think some people are losing their resolve. I mean, even if there's just a 1% chance of getting grandma sick over the holidays, many of us wouldn't forgive ourselves. And a better safe than sorry mindset is certainly setting in. To get us started here, talk to us about your approach to tackling the COVID research you've done and how it's informing your navigation of this tricky, so-called risky holiday season. Yeah, it's tricky, although one needs to ask oneself, does grandma get a say in any of this? Mm. You know, I, I know we talk about protecting the elderly, but, you know, if the elderly are of sound mind, don't they get a say after however long they've lived as to how they would choose to proceed and live the rest of their lives? You know, that's one question that I want to bring to this, because I notice very often people get dismissive about, well, you know, most of us should be fine. We just need to protect the elderly. But what does that mean? Do we protect them by locking them away in fear and isolation? away from everything that gives life its meaning? Or do we help to strengthen their immune systems and ask them how they prefer to live their lives? It seems to me that many older people have earned the right to make those determinations for themselves. But at any rate, this whole COVID thing, I went into it kicking and screaming. When I started to hear the murmurings of this, early this last year, I'm thinking, okay, they try to sell us a pandemic every single year. <laughs> every single year, it's kind of the same story. They're trying to make a vaccine that they can profit from and see how much they can do to sell this story. Mm -hmm. So it just seemed like yet another one of these same things. And so I kind of rolled my eyes a little bit and then went back to doing my work. And I started to get pummeled by people with questions and concerns. And a lot of people were starting to get really fearful. And, you know, I make it a point to completely avoid the mainstream media. But I realized that I just couldn't, I just couldn't keep avoiding the subject matter. And I started getting confronted with some things. People were asking me some hard questions. And I thought, all right, I need to take a deep dive into this. And I need to be willing to go wherever the data takes me because I am nothing if not a truth archaeologist. It's not so much important to me to be right about what I think might be going on with pretty much anything. What's important to me is that I be accurate, that I provide people with responsible, accurate information based on the best available independent science, independent journalism. I'm talking about the kind of journalism that supplies you with multiple references that you can then follow the thread of and take a deeper dive down into. And that's what I've done to the tune of now probably easily 400 hours. And <laughs> my eyes are glazing over, but 
I've gone down so many rabbit holes from so many different angles with this thing that it's been exhaustive and exhausting. But I think a fairly clear picture is emerging that is far more alarming from the perspective of those that are interested in selling us first, second, and third waves and whatever products come with that than any kind of viral spook out of China. I'm not saying that there isn't a virus, although, as I'm sure your listeners are aware, an actual virus has never been clearly or appropriately identified, according to what's called conscious postulates, that is, the gold standard of how you isolate, purify, identify a new emerging novel virus, and then test it for its pathogenicity to determine how much of a threat it might be. That never happened. They extracted some fluid from the lungs of a man in Wuhan that appeared to be experiencing some, you know, they thought maybe novel respiratory symptoms, and they sequenced out a genetic sequence that they determined must be part of the virus, and they've been running with that ever since. And obviously, your listeners are probably aware of some of the limitations of the RT-PCR test. You know, I actually read all 48 pages of that manual, and I was astonished at just how unreliable any test results coming from that might be, particularly since all of the major alphabet medical institutions are saying you've got to replicate this thing at least 40 times in order to get an accurate result, when in fact anything over 17 times is more likely to give you a false positive. Right. But you have to ask yourself why they would do such a thing and who benefits from seeing lots and lots and lots of positive test results, even as the vast, vast majority of so-called cases, quote unquote, which is totally inappropriate medical terminology, by the way, are completely asymptomatic and are destined to be completely asymptomatic. And so when it comes to this sort of thing, really the emphasis for any rational person should be, you know, if you're concerned about getting sick, should actually be strengthening your health and immune function. But of course, the measures that have been used to supposedly get this whole thing under control, have done the exact opposite of that. They've added a stress level that is unprecedented in all of human history to this whole thing, which is one of the most immunosuppressive things that there is. And so in my report, one of the first things that I put forth as a recommendation for maintaining some sense of health and sanity through this whole thing is simply to turn off the damn news, <laughs> you know, turn off CNN, turn off Fox, turn off NBC, CBS, ABC, turn the mainstream news off, stay away from mainstream newsprint and magazines and radio shows, because the fact of the matter is, and there was a very interesting study done on the effect of the news on your health and immune function. This more to the point. Now, this article was published long before the current scare. It's very, very interesting. It was an article published in The Guardian talking about research that had been done on the effect of news on the health of people and on the social fabric. And 
the headline reads basically, mainstream news is bad for your health. It leads to fear and aggression and hinders your creativity and ability to think deeply. The solution, stop consuming it altogether. Hmm. Now, here are some of the things that this article basically bore out. In the same article, they showed how mainstream news misleads and overrides rational thinking. Hmm. Mainstream news is irrelevant to anything that has the potential to improve the quality of your life. News has no true explanatory power. News is literally toxic to your body and brain. It constantly triggers your limbic system and the hormone cortisol. And that in turn dysregulates your immune system and totally ravages your brain. In other words, your body finds itself in a state of chronic stress, chronic fight or flight. And high stress hormone levels cause impaired digestion, a lack of cellular growth and healing, nervousness and susceptibility to infections. Hello. It also leads to brain shrinkage. How convenient. So the other potential side effects include things like, not that we're seeing any of this, of course, but anxiety, depression, aggression, tunnel vision, and desensitization. Also, watching the news regularly has been shown to increase cognitive errors, and it feeds the mother of all cognitive errors, which is corporate and political confirmation bias. Not that any of that's happening. <laughs> and it also adds to social polarization, divide and conquer, right? Mm -hmm. So news also inhibits thinking. Thinking requires concentration. Concentration requires uninterrupted time. News pieces are specifically engineered to interrupt you. They're like viruses, if you will, that steal attention for their own purposes. News makes us shallow thinkers, but it's worse than that. News severely affects our memory function. According to at least one Canadian study, news is an intentional interruption system. It also works like a drug. It literally alters the structure of your brain. The more news you consume, the more you exercise the neural circuits that are devoted to things like skimming and multitasking while ignoring those brain circuits that are used for thinking deeply with any meaningful focus. Mm. News totally wastes your time. It makes us passive. News stories are overwhelmingly about things you can't influence. It grinds you down until you adopt this worldview that's pessimistic and desensitized, sarcastic, cynical, or fatalistic. You know, the scientific term in some respects is learned helplessness, which is also associated with clinical depression, which is another epidemic right now, a bigger one. News also kills creativity. You need independent reporting. We all need independent reporting that polices our institutions and uncovers actual truth but not something that just gives us sound bites and corporate or vested interest driven talking points. And that's why we have to support quality alternative media, you know, like your show. This is also why alternative media is totally in the crosshairs of the mainstream media right now. So we need to stop getting into the fear porn that is mainstream news media. Now, Truth is not necessarily fear porn, right? Mm -hmm. But the problem is that the mainstream media isn't about being objective or even exploring what might or might not be true. Censorship right now is at an all-time unprecedented high everywhere in the world. I've never seen anything like this. I was really completely unprepared 
for just how rapidly this virus of fear swept across the planet and consumed absolutely everything and put people in a place where they were ready to surrender every human right they had out of fear and just simply go along like lemmings and put the diaper on their face and shuffle along and stand in the little circles in line and not even really questioning whether they're right about any of this or, or whether these measures are even proven to be helpful, which we know they're not. I've got something close to a 120-page report that I have written that obviously has to be pared down a bit before I publish it, just simply on the subject of how ineffective and dangerous, dangerously harmful masks are. Mm. And yet, you know, we're not really allowed to question that. Right. Just a Petri dish on the face, basically. That's and exactly what I referred to it as. Yep, <laughs> that's exactly what it is. You've got a Petri dish strapped to your face that is impairing your ability to breathe oxygen, which, by the way, also that and rebreathing your own CO2 at such a constant way is also the most surefire way to inhibit your immune function. And in fact, there was a recent CDC statistic that they're kind of trying to shuffle under the rug now, that showed that in excess of 70% of everybody that has gotten ill from this thing actually wore their masks mostly or always. Hmm. And only somewhere between 3 and 7.8% of persons who have gotten sick reported never wearing a mask. And we also know that statistically, in all of the countries around the world where masks have been required, there has been insignificant effects upon rates of infection. And that makes sense because all of the research points to the fact, all of the peer-reviewed research, some of which has been out for some time, some of which is actually published more recently and then shuffled under the rug, but some of us know where to find that rug, <laughs> have shown that the masks that are being used, including these N95 masks, show no statistically significant effects for protecting anybody, including medical personnel in hospital settings, from respiratory infection. And so I see them as basically an adorning crucifix of the you know, mainstream medical orthodoxy and a symbol of acquiescence and obedience to the state. Mm -hmm. So they become symbolically very important to the predatory corporate mainstream Oh, I don't know. We'll call them powers that be, I guess. But they actually offer you not only little to no protection, but actually potentially significant harm. And the fact that this is being foisted upon children to me is just, it's genocidal. There's no reason for it. No evidence at all that children are at risk of getting this infection in any meaningful way, nor is there any evidence in any of the available literature that they are infecting adults. Mm -hmm. So why do this? Why do this to your child? Why deprive your child of fresh air to breathe? Right. Well said. And on the subject of evidence, let me ask you about this, because I've heard you talk in the past about studies on coronavirus and viral shedding that didn't go maybe as expected. Right. 
And you close your COVID-19 special report with a quote from Louis Pasteur, where he says, it is not the germ we need to worry about. It is our inner terrain. Right. I totally agree with that. And some Pasteur advocates consider the idea of person-to-person transmission and viral contagion to be a vastly overblown paradigm, if not outright wrong. Right. In our system, that position looks pretty extreme. But what are your thoughts on that with the coronavirus or any other viral threat that might roll out in the future? Well, right. The bottom line issue isn't the virus itself. It's the health, strength, and resilience of your own immune system. And the human immune system doesn't get stronger by being hermetically sealed in a bubble, wearing a hazmat suit, wearing goggles and masks and gloves and face shields and God knows what else. Human immune system has evolved over, you know, over a couple million years to function at its best through exposure, through natural exposure to environmental antigens, to things like viruses and bacteria and whatever else. It's sort of like saying that, well, you know, my muscles are too weak, therefore I really shouldn't try to lift that heavy weight. Well, (laughs) how do you expect (laughs) to get stronger, you know, by sitting around and atrophying or by taking steps to strengthen those muscles? And your immune system is like that. It needs exposure in order to improve its own resilience, its own strength. And we need certain foods. We need fresh air and sunshine, as opposed to being banned from the beach and the parks and whatever else. We need these things in order for our immune system to function normally. And obviously, we've seen proof in places that didn't lock down that that approach clearly works better than these lockdowns. And of course, I'm sure you've heard about the Barrington Declaration, where more than 35,000 scientists and medical experts from around the world have signed a declaration saying that lockdowns are a catastrophic failure, that they are not the answer to addressing this thing, but that we all need to come to grips with the fact that the virus is there. All this started with, hey, just stay home for two weeks, you know, right. so we can flatten the curve and everything will be cool and we can all, you know, and it's not like this virus is some noxious gas or, you know, some toxic gas or something like that. You can just sort of seal yourself in behind closed doors in your bunker and wait for it to sort of pass overhead and then come on outside and everything's free and clear. It's there. It's going to be there. By the way, we've all by this point been exposed to it, right? And those of us listening to this or talking about this are still here. So clearly, herd immunity is something that is a rule and not an exception in dealing with whatever comes down the pike. And this, for heaven's sake, if ever there was something that should be dealt with, true herd immunity, which comes through day-to-day natural exposure, it's this thing. That you and I and the vast majority of people listening to this have roughly a 99.96% risk of survival here. (laughs) Well, let me actually ask you about that because that was on my list of questions. First, great point that there are plenty of quality sources and PhDs and experts who don't agree with the mono- narrative and they just aren't being presented to people and it looks like everyone agrees when you only pay attention to the news but 
when it comes to the strategy of talking to our friends and family, it seems like the alternative community is confidently repeating that COVID-19 isn't that bad. Just like you say, it has a 99% survival rate, but that's not doing much for the conventional people I talk to because they're reading these stories about long-term lung damage, and now we have headlines that are claiming permanent mental illness, and those things are just as scary as death for some people. I know you know the importance of outreach and increasing the number of people who can see the real data behind the narrative, but how can we do that without causing friction with the people we love? Well, we need to put all this in some kind of rational perspective. Look, there are more than 200 different respiratory viruses floating around in our environment, in our global environment. We're all getting exposed to these things all the time. You know, and we're not getting sick 200 times a year either, right? Usually the immune system mounts its response and it deals with it. And by the way, these respiratory illnesses mostly share a fairly similar symptomatic profile. One of the questions I ask myself too, because obviously, you know, advanced stages of pneumonia and whatever else seem to characterize the really severe cases. And I'm like, I wonder how many people every year actually get pneumonia just here in the United States. And I went to some official respiratory medicine websites, and what I found was that over 2 million people in the United States alone get pneumonia every single year, mm. right, on an average normal year. And of those more than 2 million people that managed to contract pneumonia, roughly 50 to 55,000 people as a matter of, of the normal course of things will die from pneumonia. And the profile of those that die is not dissimilar to the profile of people at risk for what is deemed this COVID-19 thing. But the thing to point out with respect to pneumonia is that there are many different kinds of pneumonia. They're not all caused by respiratory viruses. Some are viral, but some are bacterial. In fact, the use of masks, according to one study, has spiked the incidence of bacterial pneumonia, which is by orders of magnitude, much more serious than viral pneumonia generally is, just because people are constantly rebreathing their own bacteria with the use of these masks. But there are also potentially fungal causes of pneumonia. And of course, we know that there's a very high risk of ventilator-induced pneumonia, mainly because these ventilators are harbingers of antibiotic-resistant bacteria that can really create lethal states of pneumonia. But there are also medications that can induce pneumonia. There are, of course, there are things like aspiration that can induce pneumonia. So pneumonia has many, many causes. And again, the people that are most vulnerable to it tend to be, it's the same suspects for the most part. It is the weak, the frail, the elderly, those mostly with comorbidities. And I don't really want to make being elderly sound like an automatic disease threat. I know people in their mid-70s that are way healthier than people I know in their 30s and 40s. I would worry way more about somebody who is 30 years old and living on a diet of Twinkies and beer, which a lot of people are right now, locked behind closed doors with nothing better to do, looking to comfort themselves with food and beverages. I worry way more about them than I worry about, you know, a 75-year-old who takes good care of their health and does take measures 
to be careful about what they eat and what they drink and how much and all of that, you know, how much activity they get, etc. One of my best friends, her mom a year ago, this time was 105 years old. And I'm talking 105 years young. She was like awesome. All the lights were on. Everyone was home. She was completely ambulatory. And her favorite thing was hanging out with her friends and playing cards and laughing and telling jokes. She was a total character, just a total card, loved to laugh. And all of a sudden, this thing happens. And the people in the care facility that she was living in, suddenly they locked everything down. They strapped masks on their faces so she couldn't see their facial expressions. Friends were forbidden from visiting her. She was only rarely allowed a visit from her daughter. And her whole quality of life literally went down the toilet. And when she last saw her daughter, she looked in her eyes and said, I don't even know what the point is anymore. I don't have any reason to be here anymore. Mm. And she can now be counted among those who died a death of despair and loneliness because that's ultimately what killed her. She did not get COVID or anything else. She just went into decline so rapidly through this whole thing. Now, she was 105, but I think that she deserved, she had earned the right to determine her own destiny. It was not up to anybody else, you know, to control how she spent the rest of her life. People forget that there are some things that are worse than death. There truly are. Yes. Slavery would be one of them. Mm -hmm. You know, living in a completely closed totalitarian society, in my mind, is far worse than death. I would rather only live for one day in a state of freedom as a human being, able to express affection for those that I love and free to just simply live my life as a human being in whatever manner I see fit or that gives my life meaning, then live for 20 years in a state of total control, total lockdown, mass surveillance, mandatory vaccines, and other treatments that, from all available evidence, are going to be far more dangerous than health-promoting. Mm-hmm. Fear does really interesting things to the brains of human beings. One of the things I wrote about in my first book, Primal Body, Primal Mind, toward the end of the book where I was talking about the brain, you know, the primal mind section of the book, I mentioned how things like fear basically have the effect, fight or flight state of autonomic functioning in the nervous system basically has the effect of completely shutting down blood flow to the frontal cortex of our brain, our executive function, the part of our brain that not only makes us the most human, but also allows us to rationally assess what is going on around us and choose a course of action based on available evidence, based on thoughtfulness, based on maybe things from the past and also the ability to plan for the future. All that goes out the window in a state of fight or flight. And that's precisely what mainstream media now is doing everything possible to induce one moment to the next. You know, the people I know who are doing best are people ignoring the mainstream media right now. (laughs) 
Yes, yes, that is no small thing. Definitely worth pointing out. And I guess I would also ask, you know, why are so many people in an internally weak state and nutrient deficient? A lot of people just don't know what they need to do. And yes, the news is hyping everything up, putting people in a state of fear. Our educational system has conditioned us in a certain way. But also, diet is such a huge part of this, and not only for the robustness of our immune system, but also that brain function. And it really is uh, you know, a one-two punch, the body and the mind, and they definitely have a synergy when it comes to what we put in our body, right? It's everything, really. I mean, the health of your immune function, in large part, see, I spent more than 20 years working directly with the brain in a clinical setting doing something called neurofeedback. So I'm acutely sensitive to the effects of stress and all of that on brain self-regulatory function and capacity. And so obviously I'm able to come at these things from different perspectives, but my first love and my first passion is nutritional health, functional nutrition. And of course I come at this from in part an ancestral perspective, although that's not the whole enchilada for me. But it is the most rational and essential starting place, looking at the ways in which we evolved to determine, you know, what, what were the selective pressures that shaped our physiological makeup and our more basic nutritional requirements. We have to start there, but it's not an end point. Because just because our ancestors did something, in my mind, is not necessarily the best reason to do the same thing. You know, they did what they did because of what was available or what some of their tastes were or whatever else, not necessarily because it was going to optimize their health. And it's irrational to think that everything they could have put in their mouths, chewed up and swallowed, was going to somehow be optimal for their health. So how do we know? Well, in my work, I've gone and I've looked at basically longevity research. You know, there's 100 years worth of that out there. And there's a lot more that we understand today about what kinds of things are likely to be more optimizing to longevity and other things that seem to, you know, cut that short a bit. And it turns out that you can overlay those things and you can ferret out some of the things that are most likely to be helpful and some of the things that are most likely to compromise the quality of your aging and your longevity. And when I talk about longevity, you know, like, after this interview, I could walk out into the street and get hit by a city bus. So it's not really the quantity of your life that matters. It really is the quality of your life. You know, as long as I'm alive, I want to be cognitively functional. I don't want to be hooked up to some kind of oxygen tank or crippled from arthritis and unable to get around or unable to remember the people and recognize the people that I love. It's really about quality of life. And anything that helps to promote longevity is effectively protecting you from disease. Now, you know, blood sugar issues are a major source of neurological and immune dysregulation. And so, you know, one of the first things that anybody needs to be concerned about is getting blood sugar issues under control. And of course, we know that anything that creates a blood sugar spike and create up to a 90% impairment of your immune function for a few hours following that high glycemic meal. And so it is something that it suppresses something called the leukocytic index. 
And it's a very real vulnerability. So to my way of thinking, well, you know, of the three major macronutrients, proteins, fats, and carbohydrates, the only one for which there is no established, scientifically established human dietary requirement is carbohydrates. We literally have a zero requirement for dietary carbohydrates of any kind, including fiber. Everybody thinks that's essential. It's truly not. I'm not saying you shouldn't ever consume it. I'm saying that there's nothing to suggest that it is essential to your health and well-being. And so basically, since carbohydrates are more likely, particularly utilizable carbohydrates like sugars and starches, because they're more likely to dysregulate your brain, blood sugar surges create also anxiety and can lead to roller coastering of mood, of attention, of cognitive functioning, and of energy levels and everything else. Sugar is a very volatile, unreliable fuel. And if you're relying on it as your primary source of energy, and believe it or not, there's an alternative. Everybody thinks blood sugar is the thing that allows your energy to exist. And that's actually more of a choice than it is a necessity. The more you're relying on sugar as your primary source of fuel, the more volatile all of those things are going to be. It's a very, very unreliable source of energy that burns off quickly and needs to be replenished frequently. And so there's an analogy that I like to use with this is pretty helpful for a lot of people. And for those who aren't familiar with my work, it's my wood stove analogy. And of course, you know, I'm originally from Minnesota, so <laughs> wood stove analogies work well for me. <laughs> if you're in Australia, maybe not so much, but carbohydrates like say what they call your complex carbohydrates, like brown rice and beans and sweet potatoes and you know things of that and whole grains, et cetera, blah, blah, blah. Those are really the equivalent of twigs on your metabolic fire. White rice, white potatoes, white bread, you know, and things of that nature. Those are really the equivalent of crumpled up paper on that metabolic fire. And then you have sugary beverages and sweetened alcoholic beverages and things of that nature, which are literally like throwing gasoline or lighter fluid on that metabolic fire. Now, say you have a wood stove and you're using that to heat your home and all you have to fuel it is a big pile of kindling, which is really what carbohydrates are, metabolic kindling. You can certainly do that. And this is what we're conditioned as a society to do 99.9% .9 of the time. But what's actually happening? You're basically parked in front of that wood stove for the better part of the day, constantly preoccupied with where that next handful of fuel is coming from. How many people that you know just kind of plan their lives meal to meal? Or God forbid that you should forget and try to live your life and go around and run errands and do other things, or God forbid, try to sleep all the way through the night. And there's an analogy there too. And then suddenly, oh my God, the fire's going out. And then you're desperate. You're craving stuff. You're crumpling up paper, <laughs> grabbing lighter fluid or whatever, and throwing it on the fire to try to keep it going, to try to keep yourself warm. But I basically refer to that as a state of metabolic enslavement. So what's the alternative? Well, 
What if instead you were to take a nice big fat log and throw that on the fire? Now, all of a sudden, you're kind of free. You're free to go off and live your life. You're free to sleep through the night. You wake up in the morning, you look in the little firebox there, and it's, oh, look, the fire's burning down. I'll just throw another log on the fire. And then suddenly you go off and you live your life and you're able to make uh, better choices about what you eat because it's not this constant state of resurging urgency. We're actually designed to make use of one of two types of fuel in a primary way. Anybody listening to this is either a sugar burner in a primary way or a fat burner in a primary way. If you're a fat burner, you're relying on things like ketones and free fatty acids for your ongoing source of fuel. And you don't really weaken the little bit of glucose that everybody needs in some small way because there are certain, the retina of the eye, your red blood cells, the inner medulla of your adrenals and things like that do require a small amount of glucose. You don't ever have to consume glucose to get that. You can manufacture all the glucose your body requires from a combination of protein and fat in the diet. Hopefully you're getting most of it from fat. And you then have a steady supply of fuel that your body, you know, the thinnest person listening to this probably has 100,000 to 150,000 kilocalories of fat on their body that they could be relying on tapped into as a primary source of fuel even in the absence of regular meals. But the sugar burners of the world are in constant need of replenishing that fuel. I mean, sugar has so many potentially toxic effects on your health and on your immune function, on so many things. And because it's not essential, in my mind, it's kind of a, if you will, no-brainer. You just kind of, you know, leave it out and instead make better choices from uncompromising sources of protein and a whole variety of fats, including animal fats, but again, of uncompromising quality and sourcing. I'm not talking about the crap that comes from fast food joints or willy-nilly mainstream grocery stores and things like that. The health of the meat or fat that you consume directly corresponds to the health of the animal that meat and fat came from. And so by focusing on quality sources of, for instance, animal source foods, which in truth have much more essential nourishment to us than most plant-based foods, and I know that sounds counterintuitive, but it's demonstrably true. We just need to focus on quality. And as such, you know, you don't end up having to consume a whole lot in order to meet your nutritional requirements. In fact, I actually advocate for protein moderation, meeting your protein requirements day to day, but not meaningfully exceeding them. And there are a whole host of reasons why, and I talk about that at some length in my book, but that came from my understanding of longevity research and certain metabolic pathways that we trigger when we overconsume protein that may not be in alignment with our long-term best interests. So meeting but not exceeding those requirements in the long run makes the most sense and is the best for your immune system. And there have been some really exciting studies that have been published in the last few years or in, in the last year or two that have shown where effective ketogenic adaptation is 
as profound an antiviral effect with your immune function as it's more protective from things like influenza-like illness than any other way of eating can possibly be. Mm. It's anti-inflammatory. You don't get big surges and spikes and dips in blood sugar. And you're also generally consuming a more nutrient-dense diet when you are doing that. Unless, of course, I mean, there's many ways of, I guess, there's many different versions of ketogenic diets out there as there are people claiming to practice them. And honestly, majority of what is being popularized is actually not necessarily in, in the best alignment with health. Again, I take an ancestral approach to nutrition from the standpoint of quality and sourcing of the food that we consume. But I also, again, use things like longevity research to modify those principles into something that is truly health optimizing. And that is the big difference. Mm. That is a really great breakdown. And actually, you know, related to this, I've heard you talk about the importance of organ meats. And it seems like if we're not eating quality fats and we're not eating organ meats, there are essential vitamins and nutrients that haven't been in our bodies in years, in some cases, maybe ever. Right. Probably the ultimate superfood of all time. If everybody could just learn to love one thing, it would be liver. I know for a lot of us, it's almost taboo. We have been conditioned in our culture to not like liver, or at least a lot of people feel that way about it. But the fact of the matter is, is that it is far and away the richest source of so many nutrients, but particularly vitamin A, which prior to World War II was the primary focus in medical research of anti-infective therapy. There is probably no more important nutrient to the health of your lungs and to the health of your immune function than vitamin A, which, by the way, also requires zinc which is richest and best absorbed from animal source foods for a variety of reasons. But vitamin A and zinc are absolutely critical. And, you know, under all of this now stress that everybody is having foisted upon them and is foisting upon themselves through, (laughs) you know, through the self-abuse of watching the news all day long, you know, stress and trauma can up to triple your rate of zinc excretion. So, Just by letting yourself be stressed out and subjecting yourself to things that add to that stress unnecessarily, you're really putting yourself in an extremely vulnerable position with respect to your zinc status. And I'm sure your listeners are really familiar with how hydroxychloroquine and zinc will pair together. In a lot of times, they throw ZPAC in with that as erythromycin and that sort of thing in order to have a nearly 100% effect of protecting against problems with COVID-related illness, particularly if you catch it early on. So zinc is one of those things that your immune system has to have, but vitamin A and zinc really kind of go hand in hand. Vitamin A also goes hand in hand with vitamin D3. And there are some profound statistics that I don't have sitting in front of me right now, but you're something like 90% more likely to have a bad outcome if you do become symptomatic with this thing. If your vitamin D3 status is below, I believe it's 30 nanograms per deciliter as opposed to being over 40. If it's over 40, you have 
a better than 90% chance of fully recovering. So vitamin D status is another really critical part of the equation. But in order for vitamin D to work properly, you need healthy amounts of vitamin K2. And I am talking about a form of K2 called MK4, which is naturally present in the fat of animals allowed to consume nothing but pasture in the course of its life. It's particularly high in things like poultry liver and poultry fats. And probably the richest natural source of vitamin K2 MK4 is in a particular strain of emu oil. There's one company in this country, and I, I don't have any financial stake in this company at all, but their emu oil actually is the richest natural source of vitamin K2 that you can use to supplement with. And it's basically a whole food, you know, it's a food source and it's not like some extract. I am not a fan of the MK7, the bacterially fermented forms of vitamin K2 that are known as MK7. Those are actually manufactured from genetically modified bacteria in a laboratory, not created in any meaningfully natural way. And the Dutch researchers that, so here's the deal. It's become that MK7 form of K2 that is now infiltrating our food supply and supplements in health food stores and everything else. It has become the darling of the health food industry, not because it is a healthier, more effective form of K2, which there is literally no evidence to suggest, but because it can be patented. And the Dutch researchers that are promoting and doing things to, oh, let's just say, color the research they're putting out there, which is largely based on MK4 studies and not really based on MK7 studies, they're the ones holding the patents on this. And actually, recently, what was his name? Ah, the main Dutch researcher that has been promoting all of this, he was actually brought up on fraud charges for some of this. Anyway, I'm digressing. K2 is incredibly important. Vitamin D3, as we know, in part is useful for your proper absorption of calcium. What people don't realize is that what determines where calcium goes once your body actually absorbs it is your vitamin K2 status. And the only form of K2 found in the brain, the only form of K2 that has been demonstrated to actually pass through umbilical blood into a fetus from the mother is MK4. And that's the only form that we actually evolved consuming. And we get it from pastured animal fats and poultry fats are a particularly rich source and poultry liver. So organ meats are the most nutrient dense form of meat that there is. And they've become really scarce in the American diet. When people think of meat, they think of chicken and steak and fish, but they don't really think of all of the nutrient-dense organ meats and tissues that also go along with those animal source foods that actually have a lot more to offer you nutritionally than the muscle meat that everybody associates with that. Now, in some cases, people, they either can't get those organ meats or they just can't deal with the taste or the thought of it or whatever. I know there's one supplement company. Again, I have no financial stake in them at all, and it's called Ancestral Supplements. And Brian Johnson created this company. He's, he's become a good friend of mine because 
I basically sought him out to say, your product is awesome. And what he does is he has these animals that are being raised in New Zealand in absolutely pristine conditions on pristine pasture with, you know, no chemicals, no hormones, no antibiotics, no nothing. And when the animals are harvested, then the tissues are portioned out, minimally processed and encapsulated so that you can take your liver or your spleen, your pancreas, your brain tissue or whatever else in an encapsulated form and get the nutrients from that without having to taste it if that's something you prefer not to do. But there are all kinds of tricks to getting around the liver thing. Hmm. Yeah, I like all that advice. And clearly, there's a lot of education people need to do about proper diet and nutrition. And personal responsibility really is the name of the game. And man, just before we do the promotional stuff, I wanted to end with this one. So something I hear you say a lot is nobody's coming to save us. And it's a sentiment I definitely resonate with. Absolutely. But as this agenda continues, we're already seeing mainstream articles about things like quarantine camps or certain companies that will only do business with the vaccinated population. Right. Not to mention that people who are being publicly critical have an even bigger target on their back. Yeah. Well, <laughs> n now that we don't have... Think, I don't think about that at three o'clock in the morning, but anyway. Amen. I'm with you. Yeah. But now that we have the knowledge to know to resist this agenda, what advice do you have for actually dealing with the consequences of that choice, the way things are going? Oh, boy. Well, I'm not saying it's a painless choice, but we have to actively resist where we are being led by this nose ring. We have to actually just stand up and say no. And we have to be willing to not comply. I mean, if everybody right now decided to just, you know, we just got a new freeze lockdown mandate, which our governor, who, by the way, I graduated high school with, we were in the same class and <laughs> graduated the same <laughs> class of 78, go Mustangs, right? And she's a loon. I'm sorry, but she's now mandating more lockdowns, things that have already destroyed millions of lives here in Oregon, and she's demanding more of the same and more mask mandates and telling everybody no more than six people at your Thanksgiving dinner, and you have to wear a mask at dinner, and you can only remove that mask when you're taking a bite of food. Really? If everybody just walked out of their house and went to work and went about their business, took the face diapers off, really, we ought to have a choice, don't you think? I mean, if somebody is truly afraid, and they feel like this makes them safe. Well, everybody should be allowed to do what they think makes them safe. But that doesn't mean that everyone else needs to be a hostage to those fears. If you feel that mask is so effective for your health and well-being, then why would you be so threatened by me if I'm not wearing one? It's protecting you, isn't it? If I'm not afraid, I shouldn't have to. As a healthy person, there's no basis or rationale for a healthy person to wear those things. And so basically a refusal to comply is the only way that we ultimately transcend this as a society. And of course the problem is that we are told that we can't gather together, that we can't be within six feet of one another, that we're not allowed to have 
parties or gatherings or, God forbid, meetings at our homes. And so it becomes harder to create community. But we are a social tribal species. This is who and what we are. And I've got news for you. Human touch is as essential to our survival, not just our well-being, as is nourishing food, fresh air, clean water, and sunshine. We have to have it. This is who and what we are. And without it, our mental health suffers, our physical health suffers. Our risk of death from any number of things goes through the roof. There are a number of papers right now talking about the extraordinarily devastating effects of lockdown on health. And it's because we're just not designed to do this. I mean, what do they do in places like Guantanamo and Abu Ghraib and high security prisons when they really want to punish a prisoner, they put them in isolation because there is nothing more devastating to us mentally and spiritually than being separated from other human beings. And on top of it all, of course, we're taking away our identity by strapping these things on our faces. And 80% of human communication is nonverbal. We've got over 100 muscles in our face that are designed to communicate to one another. That's how we communicate. And that is being also taken away from us, taken away from children and babies that rely on those facial expressions in order to have normal psychosocial and affect development and brain development. And the consequences of this are, honestly, like I say, some things are worse than death. I think that what's happening now has the potential not just simply to make or break our economy or our survival as individuals in this time period, but literally our survival as a species. How we choose to either comply or not comply with what is reasonable or not reasonable has ramifications for things that go way beyond whether or not you come down with some kind of respiratory illness. And so, again, we need to sit down, take a deep breath, meditate for you know, 20 minutes, unless you know, you're too busy, in which case you should meditate for about two hours, hmm. and really center yourself and ask yourself these questions. What constitutes quality of life for you? I've got friends that are a little older, that haven't left their home in six months. They're afraid to leave their homes. They're sure that they're at risk. And the more we isolate from one another, the more at risk we become because our immune systems just aren't getting the workout that they need to be strong enough to stand up to not just this thing, but any other number of viruses and bacteria and whatever else that we may be exposed to in our natural environments. So, some of it is staying away from the mainstream media. Some of it is just simply educating yourself about what it actually means to be healthy. How you cultivate that. It's not a drudgery. You know, it's not something that is going to adversely impact your quality of life just because you're choosing to eat healthier foods. I actually feel like I'm getting away with stuff every time I sit down to eat because I love the way I eat. I mean, even if it wasn't good for me, I'd be wanting to do it because it tastes awesome. <laughs> but, you know, it's a matter of just 
cultivating new habits. It's not that painful to do. Right. And recognizing that nobody will ever care more about your health and well-being than you. Mm. So take charge of that. Take control of that. You have control of that. And make better choices and encourage those that you love to do the same, you know, so that you don't have to be vulnerable to these things and so that you don't have to be vulnerable to the social engineering and mind control that's pummeling you from all sides. Yes. You know, we don't need to be afraid of one another. We need to come together as community, make decisions on a local and more personal scale. And that's the ultimate answer to this. These changes that we need will never come from the top down. There's literally no incentive. It's all far too financially and politically and power vested to ever come from the top down. It's up to us on a grassroots level in our daily lives among our friends and family, people we love, to establish local systems of food production and other services and methods of exchange and support one another in a way that improves not just our physical health, but our mental, emotional, and spiritual health and allows us to thrive through what's happening. And it's really making those decisions that is going to make all the difference when it comes to this or anything else. Yes. Cheers to that. If you sit and wait for the all clear from the system, you're going to be waiting a long time. As you said, this was supposed to be a couple of weeks. Right. We're a year in now, and some people haven't left the house. So there are big, bold choices to make, but we can make them. And let's give them some info about your larger body of work, which is eternally useful, pandemic or not. Remind them about the books, your website, and the courses you offer for your primal genic approach. Right. So... There's my first book, which kind of put me on the map, Primal Body, Primal Mind. There is Rethinking Fatigue, which that is an ebook. Rethinking Fatigue is an ebook. It's what your adrenals are really trying to tell you and what you can do about it. And then there is Primal Fat Burner, which sounds like a weight loss book. It's kind of a double entendre. I suppose weight loss might be many people's favorite side effect, but it also makes allowances for people that are underweight and want to put on healthy weight. There are modifications that can be made to the program. So it is designed to be universally applicable as a foundational dietary approach that is health optimizing. And again, I've gone to great pains to connect dots from many, many different angles. And I have substantial and highly credible research to back every single thing that is stated in my online courses, which I'll get to in a second, and also in my books. The manuscript for Primal Fat Burner, the original manuscript was over 300,000 words and more than 3,000 peer-reviewed references, to which Simon and Schuster looked at and said, yeah, uh, no, <laughs> we need to pare that down. So two-thirds of the word count was pared down and nine-tenths, unfortunately, of the scientific references, which they wanted to pare down because they didn't want it to seem too sciencey. And I battled them on that and just got a lot of pushback. But at any rate, this is all very, very well substantiated stuff. It's not based on my opinions. This is based on meticulous research over decades. And by the way, also decades of day-to-day, -day, very full-time clinical work in which I was able to see in hundreds of people what worked and what didn't. And so this isn't just armchair research stuff. 
it really is based on what I have seen work and not work in clinical populations. I also have a 52-week certification course that I call Primal Restoration that takes on a variety of health-related topics and provides an unbelievable amount of, we'll just call it nutrient-dense information. I would say maybe 60% of the people taking the course are doctors and practitioners of some kind, including medical doctors, including naturopaths and chiropractors and nutritionists and health coaches, but also just average people who are interested in taking a deeper dive into these subjects. I make it very accessible and I like to think entertaining and highly actionable and practical in their scope, not just theoretical stuff, but here are the steps to take for X, Y, or Z. I also have my three-week program, the Primalgenic Plan, a three-week meal-by-meal total health transformation program that essentially handholds people through the process of adopting this optimized way of eating. And it really goes through, talks about the pitfalls along the way, goes into what to do if you hit certain sticking points or speed bumps along the way, how to address those problems and be able to kind of move past them. And also I talk about, you know, specific kinds of issues that people may be coming into this whole thing with that may need to be addressed. And it ends up being as customized as a generalized program like this can be for people. And I've gotten wonderful feedback from all of these programs. I have other things too. You can go to primalcourses.com to look this up. And, you know, for your listening audience, I'm happy to offer a 30% discount and I'll provide you with a code that you can provide your audience with that will give them that 30% off discount. And then they can, you know, avail themselves of information that they're not likely to find in one place, literally anywhere else. (laughs) I love it. Beautiful. I hope people take you up on that offer for sure. I know a 21-day plan sounds very doable. The wife and I have already talked about taking the plunge between Thanksgiving and Christmas ourselves, probably when we need it most. Right. (laughs) Uh, But this has been amazing. I'm super glad we got in touch and can make it happen. Big thanks again and keep doing what you do. Well, thank you, Greg. You too. Keep doing what you're doing. You know, we need more people like you out there. And I've really enjoyed doing this with you today. Ah, Too kind. Well, take care and enjoy the holidays as best you can. Yeah. Yeah, you too. We'll all make the best of it, right? That's what I'm talking about, people. Primal body, primal mind, Nora Gedgaudis, pronounced perfectly. (laughs) I'm kidding, but I only recently learned about Nora from a colleague of hers who listens to THC. Big thanks to Karen. You know who you are. It's a shame what they're doing to your name out there. (laughs) And I very much appreciate the hookup. And I have to give it up to the ladies recently, because anyone can write me and say, hey, you should have this person on your show. Well, sure. And a lot of the times, that person might already be on my list. But if we don't have a contact, or they don't respond to my emails, there's not a lot I can do. But lately, some lady activists have been pretty spot on with, hey, check out this person's research. If you like them, I actually work with them and can get them on the show for you. And for some of the busier guests that we've gotten lately, it is nice to have that inside track. Yeah, the Higher Side Chats is a show at this point that I think is well worth any guest's time. 
but they don't know that. If they don't know that, then they don't know. I'm sure every interview request looks the same. And health shows have always been in the THC soup, maybe a little bit of a minor ingredient, but what is the point of uncovering the lies in our system and the things that are promoted in it that make us sick or weak or suboptimal if we don't drill down into what can make us better? We want to look like we got our shit together because of our counterculture, alternative knowledge, and lifestyle. Not like we're unraveling into a paranoid pile of our former selves who can't keep a job at Best Buy because we won't shut up about the reptilian agenda. Plus, it takes a strong mind to handle a lot of the stuff we talk about around here when it gets into the dark and ominous, and giving some attention to our mental health and the connection to what we eat is well worth our time, I think. You know, I tried to preface that first question in this interview with a couple of lines about how we've been over the PCR test and we've been over the masks, because I didn't really want to spend too much time on it. Nora has 10 hours worth of awesome content to share, probably more, and I didn't really want to go over a lot of the same things that other guests have brought up when her wheelhouse is so unique. So masks maybe took up a bit more time than I would have hoped, but I am still on her page with it, especially because the further we go down this road, the more data comes out, and Nora had just written a big mask data breakdown, so it was probably fresh in her mind. But it is not just an arbitrary compliance thing. If you're in a situation where you're wearing it for five full work shifts a week, it is going to be a bigger deal for you than it is for someone who just throws a bandana on when they run into the store to compete in the knife fight for that last carton of milk. What I did want to do is get a little bit deeper into the viral shedding study, but she did confirm what I was saying when I mentioned that it didn't go as expected. In a 30-minute window of a healthy person's exposure to someone infected, it was so insignificant they didn't bother to approach it in longer terms or anything. And look, the truth is, if you Google COVID-19 virus shedding study, you'll get all these articles about how severe it is and how contagious it is. Well, you have to decide what sources you think are most worth digesting. But on Nora's website, she cites a study from Nature Medicine, a journal that publishes these things. And the conclusion clearly reads, among the samples collected without a face mask, we found that the majority of participants with influenza virus and coronavirus infection did not shed detectable virus in respiratory droplets or aerosols. So we have that, followed by a quote from a Harvard doctor that, quote, masks offer very little, if any, protection from infection. And then from the CDC's own website, in our systematic review, we identified 10 random controlled trials that reported estimates of the effectiveness of face masks in reducing laboratory-confirmed influenza virus infections in the community from literature published during 1946 to 2018. In pooled analysis, we found no significant reduction in influenza transmission with the use of face masks. There is limited evidence for their effectiveness in preventing influenza virus transmission either when worn by the infected person for source control or when worn by uninfected persons to reduce exposure. Our systematic review found no significant effect of face masks on transmission of laboratory-confirmed influenza. 
we did not find evidence that surgical-type face masks are effective in reducing laboratory-confirmed influenza transmission, either when worn by infected persons or by persons in the general community to reduce their susceptibility. They kind of repeated themselves there, but you get the point. And someone could say, oh, well, that's an influenza study. Yeah, well, between 1946 and 2018, that's what they had to study. Again, I'm just trying to help you out here, let you see both sides. It's not just one rogue study or one rogue doctor saying this. These reports are showing that masks aren't blocking viral particles and that, more importantly, unmasked people are not even projecting detectable viral loads in their exalted breath, to use their term. That's the bigger deal. And it's another notch in the belt for those researchers who are saying, you know, Contagion is not as explosive and automatic as it's presented to us. And I'm only taking the time to back up what she said about masks just because it is based on data and I don't want to sound like I think it's arbitrary. Just one more headline to really drive it home, but from ScienceDaily.com, Masks Cause Damage Study Reveals Mask Hypoxia Blood Clot Connection. Just like how the ventilators killed a lot of people in the spring and summer that were marked down as COVID deaths, if wearing a mask too long for too many days in a row has a link to hypoxia and blood clots, that should probably be considered when we're saying those are very close to the effects of the illness itself. Look, I'll put that article with all of her sources in the show notes, but you know, I prefer to focus on what makes us better, and she has a lot of good information on that front too. If you want to take the plunge, Nora did offer a coupon code to us for her courses. It is all caps, higher side 30. 30% off, no small thing. I think my wife and I are actually going to do it and see how we feel after 21 days of strict adherence to the plan. Trust the plan, as they say, right? But one of my big goals with this was to craft a shareable show. I know some episodes get pretty wild and Bill Gates is Lucifer and it's a battle for the soul. And you know I like those shows. I am attracted to extremes. But on this, I really wanted to have Nora here to craft a very shareable show a nice package that I think should be digestible for anyone that we care about so that we're not just preaching to the choir on this. We need larger numbers, as I keep saying. To quote Nora from one of her previous interviews, we cannot be afraid to make waves. We can't say we're tired of hearing about it because we aren't going to get another chance to get this right. It's kind of a now or never deal. And I don't think that's hyperbole. But anyway, what I'm getting at is I thought this was a perfect opportunity to provide you guys with something shareable for people you know who might be at least half open-minded. But a lot of the most important content ended up in the second hour, in the Plus Show, where we talked about the true underreported risks of an RNA vaccine, why technology rather than the vaccine seems to be the true endgame to COVID-19, malpractice, and even death by proper pharmaceutical prescription and the numbers there for people who blindly trust Big Pharma. Because when Nora says we don't have another chance to get this right, I believe this is what she's talking about. When a quarter or a third of the world's population gets an experimental, rushed, non-intergenerationally tested vaccine, 
what happens? The solution that's being suggested is way more dangerous than the problem it's trying to solve. This is Conspiracy 101, right? But I want everyone to have access to that section. I am so serious about how important I think it is to increase our numbers before the non-vaccinated have their autonomy revoked and the vaccinated end up in an SV40 virus 2.0 situation or worse. Obviously make your own decisions, but no decision should be made without hearing these counterpoints. So if you're a free listener, you can use the coupon code PRIMAL to get a free week of THC+. That's right. (laughs) Obviously you can do anything with that free week, but I would hope that you agree with me on this and download the full MP3 of this episode and other key shows on this theme that I've done this year and share them with the people you love. Yes, it is my job and it is my only source of income. And I hope that if you appreciate this, then you stick around for a month or two as a way of reciprocating. But I'm doing fine at the moment. I am worried a little bit more about the near future. So use the coupon code PRIMAL and you will get a free week. Remember to cancel within seven days if you can't stick around for even one $8 cycle. If you can't, I understand. But please don't fill up my inbox with, hey, I forgot to cancel. Can I get my $8 back? Because that is what happened last time I did this. And then I was sitting here for a couple of hours processing refunds because I tried to do something nice. That said, the next thing you'll get from me is probably the November joint session. Now that the THC voicemail is up and running, messages are starting to trickle in. I wanted to give it a couple more days. So go to the thehiresidechats.com slash voicemail if you have a story or experience or theory to relay on the joint session. and having other voices back on the joint session episode really does make it more of a collaboration kind of thing. It's more in the spirit of what it was supposed to be. So it's just a fun bonus show where we can get the audience involved and also sometimes give updates or additional context for episodes that have passed. And there's really no other good place to do that except in the wrap up of an unrelated show. Or of course, now we have these bonus shows. So again, use the coupon code all caps, higher side 30 at primalcourses.com if you want to try the Get Gaudis way, or at least reach out and thank her so that she knows we made an impact today. I would love to get her in the rotation more often, honestly. But then you can also use the coupon code PRIMAL at thehiresidechats.com and get a free week of plus. And I hope you listen to and share this one first, but there you have it. Coupon codes for all. Call me Conspiracy Oprah. But I'm getting out of here. Take care of the people you love. Get your game locked tight and stay safe out there. I've done my part. Your move, corporate scientism promoters, dark agenda facilitators, and blind followers of the white lab coat mafia. Your fucking move. Oh no, you see, the world isn't random, it's attached to puppet strings. Control over everything The nine to five is trying to steal ya Now don't that job seem silly Hello, can you hear me? Or should I play back recordings From some spike agency Wish we were younger and free 
time. 